Trauma code to New York City, trauma code to WBAI. I am Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, a Brooklyn trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And I am Dr. Cassandra Raphael, an adult and child psychiatrist. Welcome to Trauma Code. Together we will focus on healing of mind, body, and community from trauma. We'll discuss how wellness fits into the culture at large. Join us on Monday at 2 p.m. on they told me put my hands up and hide my head. I think they got the wrong one. I'm sick and tired of running. I've been searching for the love one. I've been looking for a dump and they told me if I move, they gon' shoot me dead. But I think I'm about to go to run. I've been waiting on the summer, so looking back and wondering how we pulled to keep from under. They told me put my hands up and hide my head. I think they got the wrong one. Welcome back to Trauma Code on WBAI in New York City. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald in studio at WBAI in Brooklyn with my co-host, the lovely Dr. Cassandra Raphael on the line. Uh, Dr. Raphael, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. Good afternoon, everybody. Happy Monday. And welcome back on the air. Uh, and do you want to say anything about that music that we just heard? Well, that was the the dinner party. Uh, I think that's their new release called Freeze Tag. And, and dinner party is a band consisting of Robert Glasper. I think listeners will know that I'm a fan. Uh, also, Kamasi Washington and listeners uh, may know Terrence I'm a fan. Martin. Terrence Washington. Yeah, listeners don't uh, recognize that I'm a fan of, of Kamasi Washington, and uh, just like you said, as well as uh, Ninth Wonder. Uh, and we saw them in Manhattan right on the west side in Hell's Kitchen last week. Um, so right just, at Terminal 5. So just to, uh, and, and, Go ahead. Just a cultural recommendation there. Uh, no, go ahead. Anything else you want to say about them? Well, you know, Glasper's coming off of his uh, Grammy Award win for Best R&B Album for Black Radio 3. Um, and he, like, you know, I don't want to say he leads, but he's certainly in that group of the dinner party. Um, and he certainly drew me into the concert. So uh, Blue Note tickets are going to be increasingly hard to get <laughs> with Mr. Glasper's Grammy, more recent Grammy when he's won several before, I think. But uh, but it is a joy to see an artist receiving their accolades. So so we love that for him. And definitely. And um, yeah, and definitely check out Dinner Party. It's a it's a nice vibe. And them live, their camaraderie on the stage, including Kamasi Washington, uh, who's really phenomenal on the saxophone. It's really fun to hear him on the sax and um, and Glasper on the piano, uh, for sure. And, you know, that's one cultural recommendation for what's going on um, right now. But, of course, uh, I think of uh, sports as culture, and we're right now in the middle of the, um, of the tournament, right, the March Madness, and, uh, you know... Uh, 
I, I always remember when I left the country and tried to explain the cultural phenomenon, March Madness, I did some research. And basically, universities' academic production, at least by some measures of accessing databases, drop about 20%. Uh, during the day games, during the the NCAA finals, so all the there's a lot of criticism and a lot of interesting things about that. But I think it's worth recognizing the cultural phenomenon uh, that is uh, the NCAA tournament, uh, college basketball, and I think even those who are very critical of of how they were exploited, like you know the Fab Five at uh, Michigan, uh, like Chris Webber and and Jalen Rose. Definitely, if you look back at videos, they really uh, enjoyed. They they had a lot of joy in experiencing um, that and and in the tournament. So, uh, definitely. Yeah, well, I want to I want to say something about about this fifteen to twenty percent decrease in academic productivity. You know, that's my that's my domain as a child psychiatrist. I'm I'm very concerned about these numbers. Um, I'm, I'm smiling a little bit when I say this, but but it's true. So I don't follow the NCAA tournament as closely, but as an alumna of a Connecticut university. I would have tend to rooted for UConn in these tournaments. Um, I was an undergrad uh, at the time that UConn was really a force in that tournament, and they, you know, likely still are. And, and uh, I went to Maryland, had... and our men and women are, are a force in the tournament right now. <laughs> well, back then, UConn had Emeka Okafor, who I think went on to play for the – well, he definitely went on to play for the NBA, maybe, maybe the New Orleans Pelicans, and, and Diana Taurasi, who I think is – arguably or known to be one of the best women players who went on to the WNBA. And I think she went to go play for the Phoenix Mercury, which is the same team as Brittany Griner mm -hmm. of uh, more recent political fame. Uh, but, but yeah, it's a big event. But to the students who are out there paying attention to this tournament, it is March. That means finals are coming. <laughs> so, you know, while these guys are bound to sign their, their professional NBA and WNBA contracts, you have finals to pass. Well, you know, just so, like um, just like the student athletes have to structure their uh, college experience around these tournaments, I guess many of the other exactly. students should as well to make sure that they succeed. But no, I'm a big fan of playing hooky at select times. I grew up where opening day in baseball was uh, a citywide holiday. You were allowed to take a day or at least half a day off of school for it. Um, Listen, I don't know what Dr. Fitz is trying to tell you all, but... <laughs> Stay focused, get good sleep, stay hydrated, take timed breaks, okay? Make sure to get the work done. Finals depend on it. The players' finals depend on it. But, uh, but yeah, like I said, timed breaks. Pay attention selectively. But since we're talking about uh, uh, the joy of uh, sport uh, as well as um, baseball, of course, this week or month is also, uh, and Cassandra probably pains her to say it, uh, the uh, what they call the Festival of Baseball, the World Baseball Classic, the kind of national uh, sort of World Cup of baseball. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not going to say too much about that. Uh, yesterday was uh, Cuba versus the USA, and, and the USA just uh, handed Cuba a drubbing, and there's a lot to say about Cuban sport and Cuban politics and Cuban baseball, and we won't get to all that today. Um, and, of course, the USA also uh, just beat the Venezuelan team, and most likely, I think the Japanese are playing the Mexicans, and then most likely there's a USA-Japan final, which should be a lot of fun. But I know Cassandra and many of you out there don't care about baseball. Anything else you want to say about Hey, I, I don't want to say that I don't care. I just say that I don't know how to follow that game. I don't know how to follow that game. But, you know, well, I do know how to follow basketball. I don't know how to follow baseball and, too and well. There's a funny I know story. Tried to teach me. It's a funny point. story about that, and and if you don't mind, I'd like to share it. Um, uh, people who've been listening to the show may know that I'm a Baltimore Orioles fan. Uh, 
Dr. Raphael is from New York and is uh, at least culturally a New York Yankees fan. I guess the way people are culturally, culturally. Muslim or culturally Jewish. Yes. Um, and that you don't really <laughs> follow the teachings, but uh, you have that uh, affiliation. And um, so that we thought that was going to be a little bit of a controversy in our family, the sort of um, intercultural <laughs> relationship between an Orioles and a Yankees fan. Um, and uh, but I, I took Here we us are. on. We've survived it. I, I think I took you to a game in 2010, and ex- I hope the audience uh, excuses this indulgence. Um, but I think it's a good story. Uh, we went to a game in 2010. I think it was uh, the Orioles versus the Yankees in. Uh, the Bronx, and that was, you know, a good team. People who know baseball, it was Adam Jones and Nick Markakis era. Um, and I think maybe Derek Jeter was on the Yankees. Uh, and uh, I remember after the first inning, you looked at me and you said, uh, do you remember what you said? Um, I, why don't you know? You tell it. You tell I, it. I think you asked me, how do, the, how do the teams know when to switch sides? So that's when I had to back up and say, okay, I explained all the baseball, and I'm sorry if rule, if uh, listeners here don't know any of the rules of baseball, but, um, you know, three strikes, you're out, four balls, a walk, you know, fair, foul, first base, second base, third base, um, you know, three outs to uh, an inning, each team gets a side, you know, nine innings to a game, explained all of that, everything short of the infield fly rule. And I remember the, the Orioles, it was the eighth or ninth inning, and we had our excellent closer at the time was i think jim johnson was his name and orioles were winning two to one and i think nick swisher hit a two-run home run off of him and uh you just looked at me and said that means we won uh, <laughs> as, as the yankees just See, it wasn't all by. lost i got it i got it yeah i don't I, know what you're talking about anymore but back then it made sense so anyway, I just wanted to share my love of baseball and that little uh, story of of, uh, of baseball in, in our history. But um, you are, of course, listening to Trauma Code on WBAI in New York City. Uh, and we're just taking a little break, a little check-in on the Trauma Code. We've been talking about culture and sports as culture uh, for the last little bit. Um, and I don't know if you have anything else you want to say about that, Dr. Raphael, but I was thinking to... Uh, play some music and talk about some other cultural uh, uh, items of import that are going on. What Let's do you say? Let's do that then. I'm okay with that. All right, Reggie, are we good? Oh. Let's. Started? Yeah, let's put on that, that next musical clip. did it too because of you feelings i handle with care some recognize your life they can handle the glare you know i ain't the type to walk around with matching shirts a relationship is effort i will match your work i want to be the one to make you happiest and hurt you the most they say the end is near it's important that we close to the most high regardless of what happened on him let's rely
second. It's important we communicate and tune the fate of this union to the right pitch. I never call you my to even my boo. There's so much in the name and so much more in you. Few understand the union of woman and man. It's sex and it's English where they assuming it land. But that's fly by night for you in the sky right. During these cold shy nights, moon, you my light. If heaven had a height, you would be that tall. Ghetto to coffee shop, you, I see that all. Let's stick to understanding and we won't fall. For better or worse times, I hope to me you call. So I pray every day more than anything. Friends will stay as we begin to lay. This foundation for a family. Love ain't simple. Why can't it be anything worth having? You work at annually. Granted, we've known each other for some time. It don't take a whole day to recognize sunshine. Dictionary defines you, it's love and happiness. Truthfully, it's hard trying to practice happiness. The time we committed love, it was real good. Had to be for me to arrive, and it still feel good. I know the sex ain't gonna keep you, but as my equal, it's how I must treat you. As my reflection, the light, I'ma lead you. And whatever's right, I'ma feed you. Yo, I tell you the rest when I see you. Peace. Welcome back to Trauma Code on WBAI in New York City with uh, Dr. Simon Fitzgerald in studio. And do we have you still on the line, Dr. Raphael? Yes, I'm here uh, enjoying uh, that, that musical clip by Common, The Light. Um, you want to talk about that, Dr. Fitz? Well, I would just say um, rest in peace to, to the late uh, Bobby Caldwell. You know, we have a habit on this show of uh Paying attention when uh, Questlove posts a um, uh, in memoriam kind of post about another artist, and he definitely posts about Bobby Caldwell, uh, who kind of was a R&B um, performer uh, in the '70s on up through more recently. Yeah, yeah, but how Common ties into that though? Please, is, uh, that that uh, song, "The Light" by Common samples uh, Bobby Caldwell's Open Your Eyes. And in I think Common dropped the light in maybe the year 2000, and it was like um, his first appearance on the Billboard Hot 100 ever after many albums. Uh, that song, uh, Common, you know, at, at the news of the passing of Bobby Caldwell, Common, you know, says, I'm forever grateful kind of for your contribution to, to that hit record for me. Um, yeah, so, so there's that. Um, but Bobby Caldwell... Some interesting things about him. Yeah, so um, many people didn't know because uh, I guess the record company kind of didn't publish that size at first. He has a sound that a lot of people would maybe call a black sound, a black American music sound. Uh, and they didn't publish on his records that he was white. A lot of people didn't realize it until he toured. A lot of people never realized it. A lot of people realizing it in the last week or so. Um, right. But, um, I think and, that was a lot of the feedback that I, that I saw when you know, I saw artists posting about his passing and I've seen or listen to other radio shows and people talk about his passing and you know there are often a few surprised people to hear that probably I don't know if it's his biggest hit but uh what you would won't do for love it is. It is. uh 
people were like, oh my God, that was like the jam back in the day. I used to be cleaning up Saturday morning. Mom would have this blasting at the house. Well, and, and they're all surprised to hear that, that he was a white man. And, and we'll get into that because I think when there's a surprising, um, uh, you know, a surprising fact of life, it's not to say that race or racism doesn't matter, but that there's something interesting in that history. So we might talk about that for a minute, but I think it's worth uh, mentioning, I think we'll we'll play some of that influence that he had, not only on R and B and other music, but hip hop really, um, a lasting influence right. on that form of music. Um, and I think, you know, that especially that first generation of hip hop that had the crates of vinyl. You know what I'm saying? Where did they first start digging okay. in their crates? Was it their parents' vinyl? And I think that's right. kind of what happened. Uh, Bobby Caldwell was a lot of that that kind of parents' vinyl of that era, late '70s, early '80s. Um, but uh, he's he's uh, a New Yorker by birth, at least from Manhattan, although he largely grew up in Miami. And uh, there's some interesting interviews where he talks about how that um, the sound of Miami, the cult, you know, the culture of, of sound of music in Miami really influenced him. And he says, according to him, his mother, who was a real estate agent, sold a property to Bob Marley and he befriended Bob Marley and learned a lot about Reggae music in particular from Bob Marley. He cites a lot of Haitian exposure to Haitian music uh, in uh, in Florida growing up, and I think Brazilian as well. So um, just to say that, you know, as we take a moment to recognize his accomplishments is that there's a very kind of rich uh, history of, of American music and uh, Latin American uh, music, world music, in Bobby Caldwell's experience and his, uh, his productions. Right, right. Thank you for that that little tip. I didn't know that actually. Uh, yeah, well, I, I just did a research, a little bit of research for the for the show, and fell into a rabbit hole. And definitely, there was a NPR <laughs> uh, uh, interview in two thousand five where I got a lot of that um, information from from his own mouth. Um, mm-hmm. But um, anything else that that you want to say about uh, about that or about his influence on hip hop or anything else? I mean, it's been you know I. We, we just played Calm in the Light, but also you'll hear his song sampled by Tupac, by Biggie Smalls, um, and and also not sampled, but covered, covered as well. So I guess we'll, we'll play a little bit more of that kind of as the show goes on so you can hear some of the tunes that are familiar, even more recent than his work, than a lot of his work anyway. And um, we'll, you know, give him the credit and, and happy to hear his contributions to... To, to music definitely and um yeah why don't we go ahead and, and play one more uh one more song from our uh, list from today and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more about those serious topics that we want to get into on a trauma code just check in with you uh, as the audience check in uh with the show you know like ed Koch used to stand at the top of the subways asking random passers-by how we doing My friends wonder what is 
To Trauma Code on WBAI. This is uh, Dr. Simon Fitzgerald on the air in the studio. Uh, and that was uh, a song that I just bumped into in the last couple of days since Bobby Caldwell died. That was, of course, Boys to Men, uh, along with MC Light covering him. Uh, and I just stumbled across that. And, and as we were playing it, uh, our, our board engineer, Reggie, uh, had, had, uh, had some more thoughts on it than I even appreciated. Reggie, you want to tell us anything else about that album or that song or that collaboration? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> You know the music industry is is crazy. It's it's funny this way, but look, Boys the Men did this back in um, 2004, and it was part of their uh, the collaboration called uh, Throwbacks. Throwback, that's right. Yeah, Throwbacks, and um, and it was they was covering songs as 
for the lack of a better term, would be heard as a staple in the cookouts <laughs> and, and got the you, black, you. you know, in the cookouts. And, and, and those are great. And that was one of those songs. And it was really cool that they brought in a, a person like MC, MC Light because they came from that era. And as I was telling you off air, I think Boys the Men just celebrated 35 years of being a group. Okay, which, yeah, for those people who <laughs> remember. remember that, yeah, you are older than well, you think what, you are. What can we do? We keep aging no matter what. <laughs> but, wow, but, that must mean I'm at least 25. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, so the, the, the cool thing is, is that they you probably didn't hear anything about it because it was past their commercial phase. Their, their peak. Their peak. And they were still doing their thing. And a lot of these bands are still doing their thing. It's just it's just the loyal uh, fan base is on it or not, whether the commercial. It, they passed their demographics. and Well, that's why it was so much fun to stumble on <laughs> yeah. that and to see their collaboration with MC Light and their... You know, they caught at least a little bit of inspiration of Bobby Caldwell as well. Yeah, I'm not surprised. How many, not, almost 20 years later. It's kind of interesting what, what Reggie's describing because, you know, there are some people who will be like diehard. 90s R&B is the best music genre ever. And that <laughs> and that is what Boyz II Men kind of belongs to. But you're right. Like, they, they sell a lot of tickets, I think, when they go on tours with other 90s R&B. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, yeah. they, I mean, like... um I don't know if he does these things anymore, but when um, Sinbad these, does these boat cruises or those uh, uh, those holiday Caribbean holiday extravaganzas that he would do on the Bahamas or or somewhere mm-hmm. on the islands and stuff like that, Boys the Men is one of these people, and and and, and as well as a let me see, I'm trying to think of what is another mainstay group at that time. That still is doing stuff like that. Oh God, I hate even mentioning his name. Escape Genuine. Is actually, Escape is a group that I know that they have Escape. a group. Where I think with like SWV. SWV. Well, I might have subscribed to this. Black. Uh, um, Black Street. Black Street is another one. Well, we're just. Uh, yeah. Okay. I, I'm. I totally am showing my age. So. <laughs> we're just reminiscing yeah. here on the Trauma Code on WBAI. Uh, and like I said, we're just checking in. We've been doing this for about five months, and I don't know if anyone heard our initial episode where we tried to set expectations. Um, that cultural piece was a lot of what we wanted to talk about. Um, but of course, yeah, as- it also serves a little bit as a, as a, you know, what they call online, a timeline cleanse. The topics are usually very heavy and, and, and they're about to get pretty heavy in a few minutes too. Uh, but it's a little bit refreshing to kind of think about something else and uh, take a deep breath and then come back to the work and come back to the business, you know? Definitely. And, uh, you know, as as uh, we were mentioning, as our name suggests, uh, we uh, part of what we do is, is in response to trauma uh, professionally, both uh, you and I, but also what we wanted to bring to the show. And so I did want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, where we stand uh, with uh, violence and also what we've been doing if people want to look back and what to expect in coming up because – you know, 2022 was another um, year that just demonstrates how much more deadly the United States is compared to almost any other country with similar economic circumstances, uh, particularly when it comes um, to gun violence and how that pales into comparison and violence in other parts of the world. Um, 
And even just that it's hard to believe, you know, I remember when I, I started a hashtag like 10 years ago, everyday mass shooting, when it wasn't quite every day, but sometimes it seemed like it. But now it's definitely like uh, two mass shootings a day is kind of almost the average. I think 650 for the last three years has been kind of the average. Um, and uh, we've... Well, Dr. Fritz, can you, can you explain a little bit? Like, I know when people hear the term mass shooting, they think of, I don't know, a, a relative number of people. But what... How does how does sure those numbers for statistics really define that like what what makes a mass shooting a mass sure those numbers for statistics are usually f four people shot at a time and for the purpose of some of these databases they'll take out if um, you know it's a shootout and the shooters are killed and part of that because um, it, it's a little bit different unless there's another four people on top of that so right some of those mass shootings are like the one in in uh, in Las Vegas or elsewhere where it's dozens or even you know hundreds of people can be killed. Um, which is really hard to 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 imagine, but a lot of them are right. sort yeah. of the what we might consider more mundane. You know, four people shot on a street corner in East New York or North Philadelphia or West Baltimore, um, or you know, and but that happens in random places all over the country because it's not a problem of just Brooklyn uh, or just Baltimore or just the cities. It's a distinctly a, a American problem. Um, and it's not only the you know intent. Oh, uh, but before I even p pivot a little bit, it's I think important to recognize the toll that this has on um, young people. I think some uh, new studies came out recently that uh, demonstrate that the number one cause of death for children, people under eighteen in the United States, is homicide, which is just outrageous. Um, it's hard to believe. Um, uh, amongst a whole number and that uh, of other causes, and that's a very recent um, phenomenon that it's been number one. I don't know, Cassandra, since you work with uh, children and trauma and traumatized children, any any thoughts that you wanted to add about that? Well, yeah, I mean, so unfortunately, the firearm violence increased during the COVID nineteen pandemic, and um, the reasons for that increase are still kind of unclear. I did, Dr. Fitz, you know, you have a lot more direct exposure to that kind of violence and you might know more about what people are kind of postulating or hypothesizing about why this is the case. But it, it also can't be assumed that as people kind of ease up or have nearly completely eased up on the COVID protocols, that we can't assume that the firearm-related mortality is going to also revert to what it was before sure. the pandemic. And, and right? I can weigh on that a little bit and just to say that some of the reason you can't know everything, but... You know, right. the disruption to people's lives of the pandemic was a big part of it. There was people losing their jobs and the economy was shifting. And But one of the things that happened that we have data for and that's not going to go down is that people were buying guns. There's a lot more guns now than there were before right. 2020. And that uh, increase of purchases correlates in a lot of way with increases in violence. Right. I mean, and, and when you think about, especially for young people, right, when you think about access to to firearms, um, since that seems to be a little bit, that's on the up, right? People are buying more guns. So what do we do or what has been done as a response to that is to kind of get these active shooter drills in schools, which is kind of a harrowing thing. And I can speak from personal experience. Like I do work for a school-based program. Um, and so we had one, although that's not what they called it. Nobody's called it that yet, but you know, we were given some instructions, told what to do. Um, we're going to act like there's an intruder and we have to make ourselves inaccessible, but somebody's going to bang on the door. And I have to say, like, when I'm in the office and somebody banged on the door, although I knew that this was going to happen, 
absolutely heightened my senses. Do you know what I mean? It stresses like, I knew you out. Going to happen, all very predictable. Yeah, yeah, it's predictable what's going to happen because they told me it was going to happen for over a week, but right. still, you know, lock your door, make sure that nobody can, you know, come in and and somebody's going to bang. So they're even telling me somebody's going to bang, and this might be alarming, but it's us, just so you know. But yet still. Um, there have been studies, I think, by every town and maybe Georgia Tech uh, that say that there's a 40% increase in stress and anxiety and depression after these kind of active shooter drills 90 days after the drill. So what I'm feeling is not like an isolated phenomenon. Right. This is a real thing, and kids just kind of have to do this. And what I haven't done, because I'm a little bit unsure, honestly, how to do it is how to like circle back with the kids in the program and be like, what was that like for you? But this right. is actually information worth knowing um and, and it's worth knowing because this is something that we've decided we can do to counter the, the you know the gun violence right that's and, out there right now and, and, and i think to your point what we is haven't that... actually done i'm sorry just let me so what we haven't actually done is actually change how accessible these guns are do you know what i mean so i think recently simon you were you were saying that in the trauma literature they reserve use of the term accident for very, very particular uh, situations or circumstances. Um, but although we call, you know, firearm-related deaths in youths oftentimes accidents, uh, at some point, if we do nothing about it, if we're not kind of, you know, encouraging our uh, legislators to do something about it or whatever, we start to feel a little bit complicit, you know what I mean? So it does feel like less of an accident. Right. And, um, and, and you've, yeah, you've just given us a lot to think about right there. And, and one of the points that I, I was uh, just going to mention is that, you know, just as, um, you know, there's plenty of research on it is because your experience is not uh, unique, it, you know, that your school is not special in that case. Uh, many schools around the country and many other uh, environments are doing these active shooter drills. Um, and I don't think there's much evidence that they really help. And there's some evidence of harm. And as you say, Instead of really doing something about preventing these kind of shootings, um, we've sort of put the muscle memory to responding to them. Um, the other thing that I wanted to point out is not only are people around the country responding to active shooter drills, but many students are responding to active shooters. Um, and I think there was a case right. that resonated with me of uh, a college student, I think in Michigan, who had gone through an active shooter in high school and then graduated and went to university and faced an active shooter uh, in less than two years later in, in their university campus. Right, right. I remember seeing that child and feeling very, I mean, so many things. You feel so many things because, like, not once but twice in your life and in the academic space that is, you know, by design, implicit in it being like an academic place is that it's supposed to be a relatively safe place. Now, you know, I've done some research on microaggressions and and um, and discrimination, and I know that academic spaces are not always a safe place. You know, in terms of like even structural violence. But now we're kind of adding on this lack of protection from from gun violence. And it's, what are we doing? How is somebody like that supposed to continue to move in this world, uh, recognizing what a safe space is and what it is not? When you know the lines keep on getting blurred. You know what I mean? Definitely, and um, the you know the mortality, the the violence of the firearms isn't only with intentional homicide, um, and as you were alluding to, um, what we 
is often termed accidental shooting, although since they're preventable, it really does a disservice by um, by ignoring ways of preventing uh, these things from happening and hold people accountable who are leading them to happen. Uh, but, you know, any day of the week you can read a story about a two, three, four, five, six-year-old shooting themselves, their brother, their sister, their teacher, uh, the case in Virginia recently, um, just because firearms are so prevalent that, of course, you know, like a, a light socket or like a firearm, if they're lying around, they're going to get their hands on them. Um, but the other point is, and I, I think the data shows, um, you know, even many more than homicides are the suicides, the mortality that having a firearm handy for someone who is depressed or suicidal uh, is really astronomical and underappreciated, right. I think, way that uh, flooding our communities with firearms uh, really hurts us and our loved ones. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, also in like around the pandemic, even starting from 2019, actually, and then the pandemic may have just increased this number significantly. The the increase of firearm-related deaths of all types, so, you know, suicide included and also homicide, what we call unintentional deaths and undetermined deaths among children and adolescents was about 30%. And that's like twice as high as the relative increase in the general population. So we have to be mindful specifically about how these children are getting this kind of access to firearms and, um, and that the, the, the toll on them is, is it's, it's in numbers. Like this is not hypothetical. You know what I mean? Like there's data for this and, and, and if that's not enough to kind of get people to think differently about what we have to do, what 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 is it going to be? What is it going to take? Right, definitely. Uh, and, of course, if you're just joining us, uh, this is Trauma Code on WBAI uh, in New York City uh, talking about uh, uh, the toll of gun violence uh, on our communities. And what I want to do is pivot a, a little bit from that into thinking about uh, how we've been trying to respond on the show, and again, my Ed Koch moment, let us know how we're doing, um, but also uh, just talk about who some people we uh, are inviting to the show, some topics we plan to cover, uh, and always welcoming feedback. You can reach out to us uh, on uh, the website of WBAI.org uh, or on the social media, I think Twitter and Instagram at trauma code WBAI.org, uh, rather, at uh, trauma code WBAI. Or by email, trauma code WBAI at gmail.com. Um, and, you know, anything else that you want to add about the psychologic uh, toll of gun violence, particularly on children, uh, in your experience? Um, yeah, you know, I, I think even we could even bring an intergenerational trauma in, into, the, into this discussion, right? Because I, I obviously I work with kids and many of them have their own trauma and many of them are kind of handed down uh, their parents' trauma, intentionally, unintentionally, you know, oftentimes even the, the grown-ups who have experienced some amounts of gun violence kind of oftentimes will parent from that perspective. They'll be like, you know, it's just not safe out here. So, you know, we can't go to the playground. We can't, you can't do after-school activities. And I think there's been a lot of talk recently about how helpful and constructive and productive after-school activities have been for, you know, millennials and maybe even, you know, a generation above that how how engaged they were in those things but but folks who are triggered and traumatized by violence and and street violence specifically will always will oftentimes kind of parent from the perspective of like I have to keep you safe and I've had bad experiences and so 
you know, I know that you're safe in the house, outside of the house is not, right? Um, so there's that intergenerational perspective as well. But direct exposure to violence or um, even secondhand exposure to violence or having somebody that you, you know or that you care about experiencing these things can trigger certain responses in you, right? So like if Definitely. your sleep is impacted or your appetite might change, you realize you can't focus, you're feeling hyper aware, hyper vigilant, you feel unsafe in situations that you previously thought were, you call and check it, check in frequently on people kind of like, you know, not because you're gen, I mean, you might be genuinely worried about them, but also like you have like a, a fear boiling inside of you that something that somebody somewhere is not okay. And, and you kind of act on that a little bit impulsively and you, um, you know, th these are signs that, that you might feel, you might be feeling some kind of trauma, some kind of way, especially even like being exposed to all the news of these, of these shootings and of these violent episodes. You, s you start to wonder how, how close is it to me? Am I being oblivious? Am I being aware enough of my environment? And all that kind of like sensory hyperactivity can be part of a trauma response. It can be related to a trauma response. And, and, and it's not, it almost feels like it's not, it's not unwarranted. It's not unwarranted, you know? And uh, um, we're going to queue up uh, another musical break, but uh, while we get that already, uh, I think one of the things I want to do is is uh, draw attention to some upcoming topics and episodes that we're going to do. And, and I'm excited to have the people who look online. The artwork for our show is done by the artist Javier Irie, and we're going to have him on the air uh, in the next week or two, most likely talking about art therapy. And, and a part of that I hope to be in this, how to health, more healthfully respond uh, to experiences of trauma and, and how artistic expression uh, can, can help uh, accomplish that. Absolutely. I've worked with Javier for years uh, with different groups of kids on building emotional intelligence, on um, understanding mental illness, understanding signs and symptoms so that they can recognize it in themselves because, you know, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry will, you know, lead with that we have at least, you know, twin problems in this country of youth mental illness and gun violence, you know, so Javier and I, we've worked together on the youth mental illness part and actually, and really more from a youth mental health perspective, just being aware of themselves and kind of understanding what the signs and symptoms are, as I said, of, of, of an impending problem, right? So um, I'm very excited to have him on. He's also a very good friend and a very smart guy. So that, that should be a good discussion coming up in, in, the, yeah. in the weeks after this musical break, we'll talk about uh, some other uh, ways uh, that we can uh, kind of respond to that violence. Yeah. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. How's everybody doing tonight? All right. I'd like to welcome All to the right. stage All the right. lyrically acclaimed. Woo. I like this young man because when he came out, he came out with the phrase, he went from ashy to classic. Right. I like that. All right. So everybody in the house, give a warm Round of applause for the notorious B.I.G. The notorious B.I.G., ladies and gentlemen. Give it up for him, y'all. Uh. I've never been as broke as me. I like that. When I was young, I had two pair leads. Besides that, the pinstripes in the gray. Uh -huh. The one I wore on Mondays and Wednesdays. Uh -huh. I flirt. I'm sewing tigers on my shirt and alligators. Uh -huh. You want to see the inside, but I'll see you later. Here come the drama. Oh, 
That's the with the fake. Uh-huh. Wow. Why you punch me in my face? Stay in your place. Play your position. Uh-huh. It come my intuition. Uh-huh. Go in this pocket. Rob him while his friends watch it. That clock. Uh-huh. Here comes respect. His crew's your crew. Or they might be next. Look at they man. Ah, big man. They never try. So we roll with them. Uh-huh. Stole with them. I mean loyalty. Put me milks at lunch. The milks with chocolate. The cookies. Burn the crunch. Hey, yeah. Oscars and blue and white duck. Ask the slides. You keep uh, on, just keep on pressing on. Sky is the limit, and then you can have it. You want to keep pressing on. on. Sky is the limit, and then you keep on, just keep on pressing on. Welcome back to Trauma Code on WBAI. This is Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, and that was another. A uh, hip hop piece from Brooklyn, influenced uh, uh, at least in part, I guess, by Bobby Caldwell. Uh, Dr. Raphael, anything else you want to say about that piece? Yeah, that was Biggie Smalls' Bedside Zone. Uh, Sky's the Limit is the name of that track, and uh, that samples Bobby Caldwell's "My Flame." So another another little ode there to Bobby Caldwell. Definitely. And I think uh, a friend of the show, the artist Juan Carlos Pinto, recently put up a, a mosaic mural. Of Biggie Smalls, right? Do you know? Do you know where that's located specifically, Doctor? Yeah, I believe it's on St. James and Fulton. Oh, uh, that's yeah, Juan Carlos Pinto, who was on our show a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago, wow. Brooklyn Recycle Project. Uh, Reggie is just having a recognition that that was the, the same guy in studio um, that uh, does mosaics with a lot of tile, a lot of mirror, along with uh, John Sear. Um, wow. And uh, yeah, I think the the the, the mayor was out there. Uh, recognizing oh, yeah, yeah. that piece because that's in uh biggie's uh old you know neighborhood is in his kind of space his ghost still kind of haunts that space and that piece they might have like renamed, part of that. renamed the, the street too like i think they might have renamed the street i'm not sure right. I, but obviously it would be like christopher wallace way or something like that uh but i i can't say but i'm pretty sure that that happened and I haven't gone to see the mural in person. I no, we have to go. Admitted that on the radio, but we have to go. And people um, in bedside, definitely it, check it, it out. Like, Let us know what you think. <laughs> I think he's wearing like a, he, Juan Carlos might have made Biggie like in a Kuji sweater. It's definitely a Kuji. Um, I mean, it's done with tile and mirror, mural. but it's definitely a Kuji. I saw it before they put it's it up. Beautiful, yeah. Definitely, it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. Um, so another little cultural reference here, um, and you know we're getting towards the uh, the bottom of the hour, the end of the show, but. Um, I just wanted to draw attention to some shows that we've already done. And, and as we just mentioned, uh, Juan Carlos Pinto is another one that uh, uh, is an interesting character. And, and if uh, either you could look on the archives of WBAI.org, uh, our show for that, or wherever you find your podcasts on uh, Trauma Code, look for Brooklyn Recycle Project and Juan Carlos Pinto. Um, <clears throat> but we'll also have some interesting shows kind of coming up. And I wanted to just briefly mention that, you know, it's not all doom and gloom. We're out here doing uh, some work, uh, responding to violence, uh, and being mindful in how we move in the world and taking that peace challenge to be the most peaceful selves that we can be as we interact with the world. Um, and, uh, people who maybe missed it, the last two shows were of, uh, People very active in community-based interventions with once Baltimore ceasefire, now the um, Baltimore peace movement uh, of Erica Bridgeford and uh, Ogun, hip-hop artist. So definitely look up those shows uh, if you have any interest in what we're talking about. Uh, I thought really moving interviews uh, with them. Um, they were definitely very moving, moving interviews. And I, you know, I, I have, I've spoken to Ogun, obviously, in the past, but really to hear him speak so passionately, especially about working with children in, with the Beats Not Bullets organization um that he i guess he's founded 
uh, was wonderful. And also to hear Miss Erica Bridgeford talking about her experiences and how she came to, you know, despite many odds, came to uh, be a founder and a leader in the uh, Baltimore ceasefire, now the, the Baltimore peace movement. And I definitely uh, want to really wonderful. Yeah. I want to bring more voices from uh, New York City as well. And uh, Dr. Rob Gore, who I work with at Kings County, part of the Kings Against Violence Initiative, uh, was uh, I think must, must have been 2019 before the pandemic was a uh, uh, what do you call it was nominated for the the CNN uh, kind of peace award. Um, heroes, CNN heroes, CNN yeah. heroes award. Right. Uh, we'll have him on, although he's uh, working on uh, kind of his own. Uh, uh, deadlines as well, um, and if, if, yeah, well, you actually did some interesting work with Kavi and, and and Dr. Gore, so maybe you should say a few things about that. Actually, that's a good point. Yeah, there was a, a documentary done through Brick Arts Media that can be found um, uh, online, and there will be a showing in April. Um, it's called Trauma and Treatment, part of the Be Heard doc series, the damage done, gun violence in Brooklyn. Um, I had a little cameo in there as well as a lot of the um, violence prevention workers that I work with uh, in. Flatbush in Brooklyn, and uh, I hope to be having some of them come on the air and, and share some of those experiences with us as well, um, as well as um, a good friend of mine uh, who a little farther afield. Uh, oh, the point I wanted to make, though, is if anyone in the audience uh, works with uh, or has people in mind, I know Dr. Dason recommended we reach out to Dr. Ali Fine, uh, who works with uh, Physicians for a National Health Policy, and I have him uh, uh I have him in the queue. we got to hammer out a date. But any other recommendations, people are doing work similar that I haven't built a relationship with, feel free to send them my way. I'm happy to to explore those. And, you know, the people from Baltimore are ones that I've built relationships with over years. And I'll be bringing some more from um, Brooklyn and other parts of New York as well, um, as well as farther afield in the, in the country. Um, one of my friends, um, uh, Dr. Uh, Brian Williams, uh, is a trauma surgeon who actually – was uh, part of the group in Dallas who treated police officers shot in a mass shooting there um, and has some very interesting kind of reflections on the, on the whole experience and work that he's done uh, moving forward from there. Um, so, you know, Dr. Fitz, it, it starts to sound like, you know, <laughs> what are we going to do if, if we, you know, speak so much against gun violence and we treat so many people and, and, you know, will the trauma still be there? I mean, yeah, there's, it's, it's, kind of pervasive in our society in a very unfortunate way but you know what worst case scenario we we cure the problem and we we find something else to do yeah find <laughs> someone else to treat to do as you say but you yeah, know I, find something else to treat but it feels like we're in a crisis you know what how's that saying go uh people out here are under attack what do we do stand up fight back um so that's, right. that's kind of what we have in mind have some things lined up uh ready to go uh for the show and as we mentioned uh Javier Irie to talk about uh, art and art therapy and healing from trauma in that way. Um, anything else that uh, you wanted to to uh, mention about uh, your work, uh, Dr. Raphael, working with um, young people in response to violence? Or... I mean, we're we're kind of we're, we're just in the same way that I think I might have said when we had Darna Nora and we were talking about climate anxiety. Uh, we're we're borrowing this we're borrowing this this world from from the youth. Right. So what is it that we want to leave behind for them? Um, and what is how, how do we want for them to see us navigating these kinds of adversities in our society? It matters. And, and they're watching. Believe it or not, I'm reminded every single day. I mean, a, lot, a large part of my job 
is to model what I would like for them to kind of carry with them into the community. And I try my best to do that. So I would encourage as many, as many of us as possible to kind of take on that responsibility with me to leave something good behind for them. Definitely. And I want to say on New York, WBAI in New York City, Brooklyn, thank you for having us. Thank you for having us on the air. Thank you for tuning in. And definitely um, let us know what you think and what you want to hear and, and reach out to us uh, through the website, WBAI.org. All the archives of our show are there on the WBAI radio archives. Uh, you can also find us wherever you get your podcasts under Trauma Code, uh, and all of our back episodes are there. And you can reach us on social media at uh, Trauma Code WBAI and Trauma Code WBAI at gmail.com. Uh, so uh, thank you. And uh, also, of course, uh, we can't do this. We donate our time, but we can't do this without the infrastructure. Uh, and, and we really stand on the shoulders of giants here at WBAI, and I really respect that and don't take that lightly. Um, so we appreciate your support. Uh, you can uh, give online at WBAI.org or give to WBAI.org uh, or call in at 212-209-2950. Tell them Trauma Code sent you because uh, uh, we appreciate you and your support. Uh, anything else that you want to say, Dr. Raphael, as we wrap things up here? I'll just repeat the number, 212-209-2950, to keep uh, WBAI going, get their message out there, and to uh, continue to hear us on the Trauma Code. Uh, we're always happy to have your feedback, and we're happy to have your, your listening. And we're going to round out the show with the original, uh, all these Bobby Caldwell kind of remixes and samples. Uh, well, the music is good. You know, the music is good. And this will be the original Bobby Caldwell, I think from 1978, What You Won't Do for Love. Take Thanks care, again for joining us. I guess you wonder where I've been. I search to find the love within. afternoon. For WPFW Washington and WBAI New York, I'm Darnia Samuels. Here are some headlines for this hour. 